It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The been thinking about McDonald's all day. Can't get it off my mind. I can already taste it. Ooh, got my mind on my mouth and my mouth ready for some Mickey D's deal. There's a deal for every moment at McDonald's. Right now, get two of your favorites for just $3.50. Mix and match a classic McChicken, a hot and spicy McChicken, or a juicy McDouble. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with combo meal. Single item at regular price. My name is Dave Hanratty and there will be no popcorn. Welcome to episode 26 of the No Encore Music and Movies Side Project podcast. Uh, It's time to talk about a couple of scary films because it's the middle of November. Yes, that's right. We hope to get this one out at the end of October, but it didn't happen. Lots of things are happening, but it's still kind of spooky in the air. So on this episode, we're going to talk about Suspiria from 1977 and Suspiria from 2018. I am joined once again by David Higgins. Dave, how are you today? I'm having a good time, man. We're here to talk about horror films, and that's what I want to do. Yeah, me too, and uh, two two very good ones. Uh, uh, an all-time classic, I think a consensus all-time classic, and a, a very interesting, uh, slightly maligned, uh, you know, a, critics were indifferent to this one, but um, yeah, definitely two things that are worth uh, looking at. Yep, and who better to help us out than someone who is obsessed with at least one of these films? It is, of course, returning guest, friend of the show, Tahio Droni! Hello, thank you very much. Did you say obsessed with the least one? (laughs) 
No, you're obsessed with at least one oh, of these. Oh, at least, which is, excuse me. Oh, yeah, in, yeah. in some people's eye, it could be the least one. <laughs> no spoilers for my own personal preferences, but we'll get there. Um, real quick, before we get into what we've been watching, why are you on this episode, Dahi? Uh, I'm a very big fan of Suspiria 2018. Uh, it's one of those films that kind of summed up the year for me and had a very kind of like, when I think of 2018, I think of Suspiria because uh, I just really, really love the film. And uh, I'm, uh, as most people would know who listen to this podcast, a huge fan of Radiohead and Tom York as well so uh it was a uh, a double treat for me this this film so uh yeah very very happy to be on uh again so thank you oh you're very welcome man and yeah loads to talk about particularly with regards to the music we tend to pick films here that have a musical connection sometimes incredibly tenuous and sometimes very overt and i think this one definitely has some very interesting music to talk about that does dominate both films two very different scores one by tom york one by goblin and they give both films very interesting and kind of, I guess, unique atmospheres. But we'll jump straight in, I guess, to what we have been watching up to this point. I'll kick us off. Why not? Because I'm the fucking host. That's how it works. Uh, so here's the thing, right? Spooky season's over. Uh, I managed to get through the month of October. I watched 36 films in total in the month of October. And I believe 33 of them were horror films. Yes, I am unemployed still. <laughs> and I've been making questionable use of my time. Real quick, I'll just run through, you know, we, we kind of talked about it in the last couple of episodes, but like I did finish off very strong. Uh, original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Ringu, the Japanese original there, or rather, I think, it's, I think there was a TV movie first, and there was, but this is the famous one anyway, you know, she crawls out of the television, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, original Halloween. And yeah, I think all of those are like, at least two of them are five stars. I think that they're great, great, great. Really enjoyed finishing off the month that way. And I was fucking freaked out. I talked about the last episode, Blair Witch Project, and how that provoked a difficult night's sleep. Ringu did exactly the same. I mean, there's elements to the Suspiria scores. I'd say both of them, really, but certainly the Goblin one, where sometimes you just listen to it, even during the day, on your own in a room, and you might look over your shoulder. It is that kind of oppressive. Watching Ringu, uh, when it gets to that bit, where poor... Uh, wonderful, handsome Haroki Sanara goes down in iconic style, and I'm I'm looking around the room, and I'm 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 flashing my phone uh, in front of me to make sure nothing is coming out of my floor. It's all a big fucking scene, but yeah, that was a uh, that was spooky season for me. Higgs, I know you had a few horror films of your own to get through towards the end. How'd you get on? Yeah, I I didn't manage to to hit the the full thirty one. That I kind of just. Uh, as as previous spooky seasons have been for me that by the end of October I'm you know just hoping that I could watch literally anything else uh I did get a couple in um one I think I'd mentioned as as the movie I was like very much looking forward to uh that was released this year something that would have been a a, a trash Tuesday staple for us this is uh Underwater which is you know essentially a alien ripoff but set at the bottom of the ocean deep beside the Marianas Trench, where people are, you know, drilling down into there and, oh God, something has, has come from the trench. Um, it's a very fun premise. You know, it, it gets going immediately. This thing starts in media res, um, but it just kind of like unravels the further it goes on. It's not as claustrophobic as you'd hope for a movie. Um, that is literally quite, you know, the pressure will kill you if, you know, you go outside. Um it does, in the end of it, make a very, very big Lovecraftian swing, like big Cthulhu vibes that I was like, okay, well, that's that's cool. Um, but it's a, it's a good example of a movie. Like this movie was delayed for a couple of years being released. And it's it's one of those ones where it's like, you know, 
I'd watched Cabin in the Woods and Cabin in the Woods was like filmed in like 2009, but didn't come out till 2012. And by then, you know, nobody, Chris Hemsworth had turned into, uh, you know, Thor and it was released just before the Avengers. While with Underwater at the time, they were like, oh, we have, you know, star of Silicon Valley, TJ Miller. And now it's like, oh, we're releasing our movie with cancelled to TJ Miller. So unfortunate for them. Um <laughs> On the Lovecraft side of things, I did watch uh, another an adaptation of a H.P. Lovecraft um, that came out, I think, this year as well. Uh, Color Out of Space. This stars Nicolas Cage. Um, it's it's good compared to uh, Mandy, his much memed movie that from a couple of years back. Uh, but this movie is the return of Richard Stanley, a director who basically kind of you know, by no fault of his own, seemed to have been sent to director jail in the mid-90s when he was kicked off um, or fired from the island of Dr. Moreau. Uh, This, you know, famously awful movie with Val Kilmer and with Marlon Brando. You know, he, he, he clashed with Kilmer, who was at, like, peak prick vibes at the time, and he kind of got, like, you know, bounced out of there and John Frankenheimer came in. But anyway, Colorado Space is... Really, really good. It's like visually a very rich um, kind of phantasmagorical movie. Um, It really kind of does the descent into madness that kind of, you know, underscores all of uh, Lovecraft's work. And yeah, it's probably like the best kind of thing that kind of does Lovecraft since Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness. Only downside is like Nicholas Cage is good, but there's times when he's like, he's too much Nicholas Cage. You know, he's, he's really good when he's kind of like, pulling it back but um obviously in a you know alien movie um that also has a tommy chong that like you know nicholas cage is going to eat a little um and two other things that i watched i have started november apart from like trying to catch up on some some movies that were out this year i've basically everything else i want to watch it needs to be five stars i'm talking five star november so i like I had a good run in for like the two last spooky seasons were The Exorcist and The Thing. I've gone Citizen Kane, um, The Maltese Falcon, Under the Skin, just like all killer, no filler. But anyway, I watched uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, the Robert Altman uh, Western, which I don't think I'd seen in like years and years and years, but it's fantastic. It's kind of like a revisionist Western that... Um, I guess like there would be no Deadwood without this. Uh, Warren Beatty plays the titular McCabe, who is a kind of a mixture of an Al Swearingen running a brothel in a kind of a frontier town, and um, but he's like Swearingen, but also like a mixture of like cowardice of Farnham, and then just like being obviously incredibly handsome, like Timothy Oliphant. Um, it has a great, great soundtrack. It's mostly Leonard Cohen, which is always very, very welcome. And the thing I kind of really wanted to bring up with the, about this movie is there's, there's this actor in it who plays kind of like a bounty hunter who comes to to come after McCabe when he's like not going to sell up his his share in the town. And I was like, who is this guy? He's like in a really striking presence immediately. He's like six foot six. He's got like a very regal British accent, which immediately kind of, you know, it stands and kind of like you're like, what is this guy even like doing in this movie? What is this guy doing in this in this town? And what seems like, you know, North Dakota or whatever. Played by a man called Hugh Malays. I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. So obviously I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole on him, uh, Wikipedia. And he is quite a life. I just want to briefly touch on him. So he, he met Robert Altman. He wasn't an actor. He met Robert Altman in Pamplona. 
when Robert Altman was like blind drunk and they, they hit it off. These are like, you know, hard drinking men. Uh, Malaise had been there with Ernest, Ernest Hemingway, who he was apparently the chauffeur for. And among many things that he was, apart from an actor, is a Lancaster Dodd from the master list of, you know, a litany of jobs such as author, journalist, property developer, interior designer, chef, bar owner, oil dealer, club entertainer and bull runner. He he had a, a very, you know, good life as apparently like chef to the stars. Um, so I'm just going to verbatim give you the cooking section of his Wikipedia page. It's <laughs> remarkable. As for his cooking, there are many stories surrounding his culinary adventures. Malays made a meal for Orson Welles after the actor-director had hired his house in Andalusia, Spain, for a year while filming, then left him stranded, penniless, in Naples. On another occasion, Rita Hayward shed her lipstick in his onion soup. Once, Malays and Gary Cooper were said to have fled unwanted friends at a Paris party by hiding in a bathroom. Malays was once presented with a platter of seafood by Salvador Dali served on the artist's naked wife, Gala. There was also an occasion where Malays shared huevos cubanos with Ernest Hemingway, Eva Gardner and Marlena Dietrich after sailing into a mini revolution in pre-Castro Cuba and getting shot through the arm at the helm of his racing yacht, the Benbow. A devoted falconer, he is said to have turned down a role in the film Shoot the Sundown in 1976 to go to Saudi Arabia for a falconer's meet. And so, you know, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, great movie. This guy had a life. How how jealous of this man's life are you at this point in time? He he apparently was a man who always had a song for an occasion as well. Um, I, I read his obituary in the in the Guardian, and it, it finished off with a lovely line. Hugh fought off diabetes, strokes and pacemakers with a diet of Saint-Ballon rosé wine and continued to entertain his legions of friends with his absurd stories and scatological songs. Huey knew something that toilers at the coalface don't. Life is not a job. I climb up a slippery pole. It's an adventure. <laughs> wow. Uh, that's incredible. Can you, can, you, can you please follow that by telling us about Unhinged starring Russell Crowe, please, which I see on your list here. Yeah, another, uh, you know, funnily enough, not a five-star movie. This was this Get out of gets, in, get, gets in because it is a, a 2020 release. Um, Unhinged is the movie that saved cinema. It wasn't Tenet. Uh, Unhinged was the movie that reopened <laughs> the theatres in, in North America. This is a really, really grimy um, thriller. Um, Russell Crowe plays a... A very disturbed man who in a kind of gets into a road rage accident with this with this woman and then kind of just follows around um, kind of torturing her throughout the day psychologically and also just straight up murdering people. Um, It's kind of hard like there's there's nothing explicit in this movie that you know exactly says this but it's kind of hard not to you know particularly you know the week that we're we, the week i watched this was the the election that like the subtext of the you know the the, the coastal liberal elite who has like a, a an online beauty business um you know road raging against a kind of deplorable in uh you know massive traffic in in LA um this movie is incredibly nasty like it opens with Russell Crowe killing his ex-wife with a hammer and then burning her house down um and then basically just kind of goes from there it's very very unpleasant um what I can say about it is Crowe is certainly committed um that's basically kind of all it's got going for it it does have a quite a good kiss off line at the end and kind of 
you know, that's all you're getting. <laughs> Unhinged. I love it. Um, I should note, I um, went into November, you know, my plan isn't necessarily a five star plan. It's kind of a, it is nice to take a break from horror though and just watch different things. So I celebrated, uh, I celebrated the start of November and indeed the death of Sean Connery by uh, diving into The Rock, uh, starring also starring Nicolas Cage. And uh, it doesn't hold up as well as I used to think it was. I always had it in my top five action movies, the 90s thing. And it certainly got action, but I don't know if it's, if, if it's really aged all that well. I gave it three out of five and uh, the galaxy man Mick Pope messaged <laughs> me in disgust to say that I was out of line. And I, I'm like, nah, man, I stand by it. But something that I did really enjoy revisiting, and I know that you're on the same page here. Um, I think we both think this is kind of underrated. Blade, Wesley Snipes Blade from 1998, I want to say. And... You know, technically, I guess the first Marvel superhero movie, really, and ahead of its time in that it's, you know, rated R and very violent. It's so much fun. It's silly in a, in a knowing way. It's incredibly stylish for what it is and for whatever budget that they had. The opening sequence, the famous nightclub uh, blood rave sequence is fucking incredible. I think it holds up extremely well 22 years on. Everyone's really fun in it. you got Udo Kier, who we'll be talking about later on in Spirit, and he goes out. Oof, boy does he get it uh, Stephen Dorff has a lot of fun in the movie as well and it's just I don't know it, it's, it's a wonderful time capsule of those kind of late 90s VHS movies that you were probably a little bit too young to watch yeah, like uh, I watched it, I think, before Spooky Season, which would have been, you know, the perfect time for it as well. But yeah, just when you say like it, it's ahead of its time, I think one of the things that's, you know, great about it is that, you know, when Black Panther came out, and this is like nothing against Ryan Coogler, who's an amazing director, and like, you know, it's a very, very good movie, but like the higher ups in, in Marvel were so like, you know, self-congratulatory that like after 18 movies that they finally were able to make a movie with, you know, a predominantly black cast and a black lead while something like Blade it was just like immediately you get a movie and it's like well Wesley Snipes is an incredible actor the Blade character is a really really interesting one we'll just make a movie straight off the bat and then you know it doesn't feel the need to kind of draw attention to itself like the rest of the cast is like quite well rounded in terms of you know different people from different ethnicities are represented and yeah it's just uh, you know obviously that's great but obviously as you said it's just incredibly fun um has an, another as, as i was mentioning kiss off lines one of the one of the greats <laughs> do you want to do you want to spell it out there the amazing the I, i'm not sure if he ad-libbed it it's unbelievable his his final dispatching of Stephen dorf spoilers for a film from 20 years ago some motherfuckers are always trying to ice skate uphill that's the one it's absolutely <laughs> incredible i also went from a uh, blade and i'm gonna definitely catch up on blade too soon uh possibly even after this podcast but I went to I, I, I went to Blade of the Immortal, which has nothing to do with the Vampire Blade. It's based on a Japanese manga, which I actually would have read some of when I was in school. And it was this really cool graphic novel back when I was into graphic novels about the samurai who is cursed. Essentially, he kills an innocent person and a witch curses him with the power of immortality and how he has to basically kill a thousand evil men or whatever it is before he can you know break the curse. And essentially, he can be like hacked apart limb from limb as he often is. And he'll regenerate. And it's, you know, the style of the graphic novel was particularly incredible. It looked fucking amazing. It was in black and white. And they made a film of it, Takashi Miike, of audition fame and Ichi the Killer. And I think I think this was his hundredth film in 2017. Um, so I knew of it, but I'd forgotten about it. And then I stumbled upon a mention of it the other day. So I was like, fuck it, I'm going to give it a go. Um, it wasn't great. It's two hours and 21 minutes long. It's got serious pacing issues and tone issues. 
And this feels very, very strange to say for a film that includes lots of hacked off limbs and one of the highest body counts you'll ever see. For a Takashi Miike film, it was surprisingly slightly tame by his standards. Like, it's got a lot of gore and people getting horribly murdered, but like, at the same time, it didn't... I I thought it was going to go a lot further and it was just mostly kind of boring. Um, The problem with a character like this who's invincible means there's fuck-all tension, Um, but it's got moments, you know, it looks all right and it's got some stuff here and there. But the big thing it has, right? So it's two hours, 21 minutes long and by by the time the last half an hour rolled in, I was like... I'm kind of bored like I know where this is going to go I'm really bored of just seeing like onslaughts of people run at this guy and he just swords them down this is dull as fuck and then it ends and I was like well that wasn't great was it but then right so this is a period piece it's set in like feudal Japan or whatever um reminiscent of Edge of Tomorrow that Tom Cruise Emily Blunt sci-fi movie which you know does have humor in it and stuff but mostly it's a fairly you know serious summer blockbuster that like has this weird smash cut to credits where Tom Cruise gives a big smile and it cuts straight to like directed by Doug Lyman and screaming over those credits is like John Newman's Love Me Again which is like a a banger of a pop song from the early 10s or whatever but I remember like in the cinema my mate Adam being like what the fuck and I was like it's so strange and out of place so I want you to imagine right Blade of the Immortal two hours 21 minutes um lots of hacking and slashing and a big ending And then you get the ending and it cuts to the credits and you are immediately met with this. So, so true. <laughs> it just makes you feel, right? That's a, that song is called Live to Die Another Day by an artist called Mayavi, uh, a Japanese guitarist, singer-songwriter, record producer, and actor known for his finger-slapping style of playing a, a guitar. Um, I mentioned that he's an actor. He's appeared in films like Unbroken and Kong Skull Island and Maleficent Mistress of Evil. So there's nothing this young man cannot do. But I was just so blown away with this. I was like, what the absolute fuck is this doing in this film? And so I immediately, like, you know ripped off my Bluetooth headphones, got that audio back on, phone out, onto Shazam, got the song, and I spent, no joke, approximately 40 minutes listening to it on repeat. I think it's outstanding. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, Dahi, I'm very conscious that we've been leaving you out here, and I don't mean to do that. Um, have you seen the film Ad Astra with Brad Pitt, by any chance? I have, I have. Uh, very fine film. I actually really like that film, and I know it was kind of fairly like badly reviewed at the time when it came out and stuff, but uh, I genuinely really, really liked it, and uh, nearly, nearly did shed a tear at the end, actually. 
Interesting, interesting. Because I mean, like I, I I rewatched it. I've been a little bit cold on it to a degree. I think it's got some problems. Chiefly, the narration voiceover, which really annoyed me. I said before, I wish I could like download a patch to get rid of it. I revisited it. I was in the mood for sad Brad Pitt in space, and I liked it more this time around. I went in for I went into it desperately wanting it to be a five star film. I don't think it is. I think it's a four. But yeah, you're right. A lot of people don't like it. Once one person who does though. He's going to rock this microphone right now. Dave Higgins, I know you went back as well. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I rewatched this uh, last night on the back of you watching it, although it's kind of, you know, obviously five star November. Um, this was one of my favorite films last year. We talked about it at around a year show, like Brad Pitt's performance in it, I think was my favorite performance last year. And I think it might be my, you know, certainly top three Brad Pitt performances. Um I I can understand the uh the kind of the slights against it that it is a malign movie. It's it's a movie that I desperately want a director's cut of. If you've ever heard James Gray talking about it, this seems like a movie that got away from him a bit. It was filmed in 2017 and it tested quite badly. Um, there was, you know, extensive reshoots um that apparently Brad Pitt wasn't even involved in because they couldn't get him. Um, it does have narration that was put in that was actually written by Charlie Kaufman. Like they brought him in on an uncredited uh, to write the narration, which is both strange because the narration, you know, it can be quite clunky and, and very literal at times. But just in terms of a a feel, a vibe of a movie, um, a performance from Brad Pitt, it looks absolutely stunning. The score is amazing. And even some of the things that, you know, you would guess were were added to um to the movie afterwards because it's got this gorgeous Max Richter score, but it also has some uh quite quite a significant amount of uh, score from Lauren Balfe who'd kind of done the Mission Impossible um last couple of Mission Impossible movies and you can kind of tell that he he had done the kind of oh you know people were starting to drift off at, at your kind of very you know existential Tarkovsky blockbuster movie so you know we need a we need a we need a chase in moon rovers and you know we need uh some 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 simian attacks in 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 on a spaceship but even those things i quite like and like i think you know 2001 is probably in every filmmaker's mind when they're making a sci-fi movie particularly one that wants to kind of ponder questions while looking up at the stars so I do wonder was even something like that which kind of is jarring but I actually quite like was that just like a a nod to to Kubrick itself um yeah it's a movie I look forward to going back to but as I said I would love for to see Gray's version because there is clearly a version that he wanted uh he has a very indifferent relationship with it he says you know it's not fully his but um yeah a fascinating movie um, do do watch it, people. Yeah, I should mention real quick as well. I should crowbar in that I uh, watched Run Low the Run for the first time since God. It's got to be the DVD days. And if you're in the mood for a 75 minute sprint, literally around Higgs's beloved Germany, I would highly recommend it. If you've never seen it, Franca Patenta plays a character who is in a very difficult situation. She has to save her boyfriend's life. She's got 20 minutes to do it. You get lots of different scenarios. It's got a pulsating EDM score over it. It feels almost like. An extended showreel for director Tom Tickver, but it's got a huge cult appeal. Potenta alone is iconic in the role, legitimately. Like, she looks amazing. If you've ever heard of Run Lola Run, you're probably picturing her right now in her shock of red hair. It's a really fun movie. I think it's aged quite well, even though it's unbelievably 1990s. Um, but yeah, Dahi, what have you been watching? Apart from Ad Astra, of course. Yeah, apart from Ad Astra. I've been watching uh, very little, actually. For some reason, uh, the last, like, two months, I've 
barely watched the film. It's been really, really weird. I think, like, I went absolutely mad, like, last month and decided to buy two brand new synthesizers. So I think, like, that is the reason why I haven't done anything else. I've just been sitting in front of a whole pile of, like, dials and knobs and turning stuff and trying to make stuff that sounds like Ad Astra, I suppose. Well, hang on. <laughs> we watched a couple of horror films together, which I mentioned in the last we episode. We watched uh, The Hills of Eyes remake and we watched I Saw the Devil. Now, you'd never seen either of those before. How did they go down with you? Uh, yeah, I mean, I Saw the Devil was absolutely brilliant. and It was very, like, I mean, we were talking about it. I'm not sure if you said it in the last podcast, but, like, this idea that, like, there is never any good cops in any of those films they're always absolutely useless the police force is always absolutely rubbish uh really really good film and then um the one film that i have watched in the last while uh has been um an irish film called calm with horses that uh, i think went up on netflix pretty recently um which is quite an interesting film uh when it came out generally i thought it was a pretty muted reaction to the whole thing um it's a kind of a a a crime family story set in rural ireland basically um the cinematography is really really good and it looks really really great and it has that kind of west of ireland feel so it kind of is perfectly tailored to me so i actually quite quite enjoyed it um uh, Barry Keown is one of the main stars and Cosmo Jarvis is the other lead who's this big hulking muscly fella who is an English actor um, but his Irish accent and especially his West of Ireland accent is actually genuinely really really good and much better than Barry Keown's I think you know um, I actually watched this uh, the other day as well um, yeah I really liked it when, when I was watching it I was like, I, I think a lot of it was filmed in Clare. I was like, oh yeah, da, da, he's gonna, da, he's gonna like this. I think it was like filmed around Kilkee, but <laughs> they, they, they do some like the location scouts where they did like incredible work because there's just there's so many gorgeous looking shots in it where you know like it, you know there's there's shots of like a council estate like just right up against the sea and it's just like it's such a gorgeous stark contrast. Um, as you mentioned, Cosmo Jarvis is like I'd never seen this guy before. And I was getting big, um, I mean, I guess like some people's reference point might be kind of like, you know, the kind of physicality that Tom Hardy has and something like Bronson, but like very, very muted. Uh, I was getting, I don't know if, if either of you have seen uh, Bullhead, it was like a Belgian movie in maybe 2008, 2009. It was kind of the breakout for Matthias Schoenarts, where he plays this kind of, again, kind of like, he's like a bouncer. He's like, he's kind of a dude you call when you need someone, but uh you know, the reason that he does all this is because there's, you know, trauma in his past. Um, and Jarvis was, you know, was just absolutely amazing. Uh, Neve Algar was great as well. And the score, I didn't kind of realise till afterwards. I was like, kind of like, this wasn't the kind of score I was expecting for, you know, a kind of West Ireland crime drama. But it was one of the lads from Fuck Buttons. And yeah, it was really, really good. It's a, it's a, it's a recommend from me also. Yeah, you're you're right about the kind of the the visual aspect of it. Like, I mean, there's a kind of a very interesting kind of like the more rundown areas of Clare that are kind of like in a slightly more kind of say like uh, there's more poverty. It's that like it has a really interesting kind of mix between that kind of those two kind of things where it's like basically a very poor area beside these absolutely incredible like scenery and stuff like that. I think they really did a good job of that idea of you know um, for young people in those areas and stuff as well. There's this kind of like general idea where there isn't that 
a huge amount to do so people turn to a whole pile of other things to kind of uh to alleviate the boredom i guess um so they they pre- presented that really well there's one incredible scene where they're in this like these rundown trains which are just outside Kilkee and if anybody is driving around Clare uh, it is like a really easy place to see if you're just driving to Kilkee from say Ennis or something you can actually go see these like just rundown trains that are just kind of off the side of the road and uh just a really really cool place to film i always 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 wanted to do a music video there so i'm, I'm raging <laughs> So I also see uh, on this running order, Dahi, you've got Song Exploder written down, but th- but that's a podcast. What are you talking about? I, I don't understand. <laughs> yeah, and it's not even a film. <laughs> uh, Song Exploder has uh, started a Netflix series as well. Um, now, it's kind of funny because there's only four episodes of it, so I can't help but feel that possibly they had started it and maybe the coronavirus kind of put an end to it or something like that but um it's uh, a really really good like song exploder was always a really really great podcast which is basically you just took a song um and the artist breaks it down kind of piece by piece and tells the story behind it and stuff and they've kind of made a netflix tv series out of it um which is genuinely really really good really well filmed it stays very true to the podcast the same hosts and everything as well um if anybody's looking to watch one in particular i would say the rem one is quite good um really really interesting to see a band that that like still get on and are totally cool with like everything they did and there's like no real kind of bad blood at all um and uh yeah it's definitely worth the watch it's really good okay i think we've rattled on for long enough about what we have watched apart from the two films that are on the title of this episode so let's dive in uh let's take a listen to the trailer for the original suspiria from 1977 and get ourselves in the mood shall we the greatest tagline in film history right there and i don't know how accurate it is we can talk about that and also i guess we'll go chronological with these but at the same time i'm sure we're going to cross talk and cross pollinate because there are obviously so many similarities i will say real quick though based off that trailer when i was younger um i think the job i desperately wanted the most was to work in a video store and that did happen i worked in extravision for a few years i know higgs has worked in the cinema but i think the job that we would probably really want would be cinema voiceover man or trailer voiceover man i should say because like Oh, I don't know. There's just something about it. It's a lost art and I love it. And I love hearing stuff from the 70s in particular because, you know, I think we have a certain 90s point of view and I forget the guy's name, may he rest in peace, but there was that kind of American guy for so long. But uh, whoever did the voice over there did a phenomenal, phenomenal job. Here to tell us, though, uh, the respective plots of these films, and they're mostly the same to a degree, is David Higgins. Well, in Suspiria 1977, um, a young American girl, Susie Banyan, Uh, goes to a dance academy in Freiburg and begins to suspect that all is not what it seems to be. 
in Suspiria, 2018, a young Mennonite um, girl named Susie Banyan moves to Berlin in 1977 during the German autumn um, and to, to go to a dance academy. She doesn't really suspect that all is not well, but we know that this place is 100% run by witches because it is signposted in the first scene. <laughs> uh, one of these films, the original, is 99 minutes long and one of them is 153 minutes long. Um, I guess in terms of wh- where we first, how we experienced these, I saw the original Suspiria on DVD way back when, uh, having read about it in the pages of Empire Magazine and so on and so forth. So I did see the original first. I went with Dahi to see the remake when it came out in 2018. And I do remember... Uh, leaving the cinema. It was not dissimilar to the time that we left the cinema having seen You Were Never Really Here and abandoned our plans for a pint because we were just like, it's going to go home, yeah? See you later. Um, but this was more of a, I suppose, a properly mesmeric experience for you, Dahi. I know that much as well. How familiar were you with the original before seeing the remake? And I guess real quick, you know, round the horn, I know you adore the remake, but we can talk about your love for that and how you feel about it. But also, what kind of relationship do you have with the original even now after kind of seeing it recently? I knew I had seen the first Suspiria, but I couldn't remember where. And uh, when we were asked to do this podcast, I decided to watch it again. So I haven't seen Suspiria basically since I was 16 years old in boarding school. And that time that I watched it, I was probably looking at my <laughs> 9210 or whatever it was that was the phone at the time and was barely paying attention. So I realized when I started watching it that I could not remember like tiny pieces of this film but hang on hang on sorry teenager in a boarding school you say how perfect <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah i was I, I should have i should have like been able to like identify with it like unbelievably well um but like i, I don't know it was it was so strange because I, like I, I obviously it's got such a clear vision from its like visual aspect that like i felt like i had seen this film already because like while you're watching it you just have an idea of what the film is just by how striking the whole thing looks and uh, I remember the music being like really really over the top Um, watching it again was a really interesting experience because uh, I have kind of come at it from the completely wrong way in that respect because I think a lot of film fans and I would say a lot of people who find a lot of problems with the 2018 Suspiria are massive massive fans of the 1977 Suspiria so they're coming at it with kind of baggage if you know what I mean so I was coming into the 1977 77 Suspiria with a load of baggage and it was a really really weird experience to watch it again because uh, on kind of first watch and when you first kind of watch it you're just like these have nothing to do with each other and like all the things that I really love about the new Suspiria like is not even in this one which is so so strange and like I don't know I mean it's immediately like um uh, you you immediately realize like why it's such an influential film you know like the the colors and the lights of it and the way it's done in that technicolor kind of print and everything um it is immediately recognizable and it feels massively ahead of its time uh the music is so so intense and and i think like both films achieve like really really amazing things on both fronts but achieve totally different things and i think it's a really, really interesting way. We can get into it a lot more than that. But um, in general, I kind of enjoyed it. I thought it was quite good. I think uh, from my point of view, it's aged pretty horrendously, but I can see how it would inspire so much, especially like horror films of the 80s and stuff like that as well, you know? Yeah, I think you could make the reasonable argument that there's not a lot going on with the script too much. It's a good concept. Um, You could argue that maybe it doesn't get fleshed out as much as it could do, but also... It was the style of the time, I suppose, and the style of this kind of a film. And it should be noted now from the outset that 
if you've never seen either of these films, they both have very commanding aesthetics and you might love one and might not love the other. You might love both. But Suspiria 1977, I think, is so stunning in almost every aspect of how it looks and how it feels and the atmosphere. I mean, I don't know if that short-lived, uh, sadly departed YouTube channel, Every Frame of Painting, was thinking about Suspiria when that title was put together. But every frame in this film is legitimately a painting. It's a pleasure to just watch it and live in it, um, which I thought was just astounding. And, you know, I don't know, there's there are all kinds of interesting aspects as well when it comes to how it was produced, how it was physically made, you know, the dubbing. When I went back to it, I was like, oh, fuck. I mean, like, it's dubbed in English by different actors. It's dubbed in Italian by different actors. And I watched it in Italian for the first 20, 25 minutes or so. And then I was like, no, I'm going to switch to English because, like, I don't want to be distracted by subtitles here. I just want to see what is in front of me because what is in front of me is so overwhelmingly, like, just the colors, the lighting, the set design, that alone is five stars. I gave it four and a half when I put up the letterbox review and I kind of docked the half mark because the script is just a bit too straightforward and it kind of has no real ending. But like, Jesus Christ, what a sensory experience all these years on. Yeah, the, the dubbing is really, really interesting because uh, I decided to to watch it first with the Italian um, dubbing and the English subtitles. Uh, and I was like, oh my God, this is like really weird and feels co- totally off kilter. And then I was like, okay, when I watched it the second time, so I watched it twice last week. Uh, when I watched it the second time, I watched it with the English uh, <laughs> like dubbing. And I was just like, this didn't help at all. <laughs> There's no actually help at all like this. And I, I would absolutely agree with you. Like the visual aspects of it is, is absolutely incredible down to like, you're right, like, like every single frame like the one that like comes to mind in a really clear way apart from all the obvious stuff is like even when she goes to the apartment that she stays in first and like it just cuts to the apartment and it's just this like absolutely crazy black and white wallpaper all the way up along the sides and it's like i don't know it has a very i mean i think the i think the obvious uh like um comparison that people would make would be this kind of alice in wonderland type feel it definitely feels like a dream world um and like it is so noticeable like it's great let me give you an example of that english dubbing uh i mentioned udo kier earlier on he's a very iconic looking actor a very distinctive fellow and in this film he was very very young but like he shows up at one stage and i want to talk about the the role he serves in this film but this will give you an example of like how kind of out of sync and out of place the dialogue sounds but yeah i just try and picture it they were kind of wild ideas she had discovered that the TAM Academy was founded in 1895 by a certain Helena Marcos, a Greek immigrant, and that the local people believed her to be a witch. I guess you knew that. No, but I have a strange feeling that somebody already told me about it. Or something similar. I can't... can't remember. Well, that really got Sarah's imagination going. Earlier in the 19th century, the Marcus woman had been expelled from several European countries. She seemed to have something about her which, which urged religious thinking people to, to persecute her. She also wrote a number of books, and I read that, that among the initiated, she went by the name the Black Queen. After she settled down here, she became the subject of a lot of gossip. Nevertheless, she managed to put her hands on a great deal of money, and she founded the Tam Academy. At first, a sort of school of dance and occult sciences, but that didn't last long, because in 1905, after being hounded and cursed at for ten years, Madame Marcus died in a fire. That's all there is, as far as witchcraft is concerned. The school was taken over by her favorite pupil. The study of the occult was abandoned, 
And soon the place became the famous dance academy. I'm tired of these jokes about my giant hand. The first such incident occurred in 1986 when, like, it's just unbelievable exposition. Like, this arrives about an hour into the film. So that's Susie Banyan, played by Jessica Harper there, who, I mean, it's hard to know how to gauge her overall performance in terms of vocals, because I've heard a different American actress dubbing her and a different Italian actress dubbing her. But I do think that, you know, I guess visually and physically, in terms of how she throws herself into the performance, she's great. Like, you know, she's very commanding on the screen, but it's hard to know who is a good or a quote-unquote bad actor in this movie um, Udo Kier shows up as a shockingly dashing young man I think both Higgs and I were like my god I didn't realise he was uh, <laughs> he was so handsome back in the day um, not that he's not now of course absolutely aged like a fine wine young Udo but the thing is like this is astonishing exposition this is just like I love how often he takes a breath. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm a breathy guy on this show, and I listen back sometimes, and I'm just like, Jesus Christ, Dave, learn how to fucking breathe. But this is just amazing. This is her having a meeting with a professor. But the best part is, this is a six-minute-long scene, and for the first three minutes, Udo Kier talks to her and then goes, hang on, here's another professor who shows up and just keeps going. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's truly <laughs> remarkable. He's like, you know, he tags him in, and I think he actually, does Udo, Udo Kier comes back as well. It's such it's such a striking scene. Number one, because well, I I'd only realised on this what must be my fourth or fifth watch of Suspiria that that was in fact Udo Kier because I was thrown off by the dubbing. I was thrown off just because I haven't seen him when he he was younger and you know maybe by his kind of like Dougie Jones from Twin Peaks cosplay costume that he had going on. <laughs> <laughs> but yes. Oh my God! Yes. But also, it, it's such a striking scene in that they're. They're outside. I think, you know, this was filmed in and around primarily like on a stage. You know, this this movie um kind of has, has a veneer that everything is is not real. Um, you know, the 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 academy itself, like the outside is clearly a back lot. Um everything everything inside is artificial. I think that's something that Argento was trying to go for. But like this scene kind of really stands out because I think it's like the BMW building in, in Munich and it's like the the lighting is natural. It's like what what's going in here? And it's yeah, as you said, like six six minutes of nonstop exposition that the movie actually doesn't really even need. Um the thing that I've always loved about Suspiria um nineteen seventy seven, the Argento version, is that it's it's just sound and vision. That's all it is. Um you know, I don't want to I don't want to get too like <laughs> uh, uh you know uh hyperbolic about it but like you don't really watch it you kind of just experience it um like even if you turn this movie up loud uh i know like i wonder die you as like a producer do you find like the sheer fact that like you know that every channel is going like well into the game and it's like no like somebody turned that down a bit for the love of god it's like it's oppressive but it works works so well yeah like I mean, it, and and I think I think that's kind of a part of the score that's like one of the best things about it. Really, is that there's like this like hugely intensive. It never ever ends. It feels like it's always rising and rising and rising. Even though it doesn't have any like kind of that shepherd tone or anything like that, it just it continuously feels like it builds up. And in the in the kind of the scarier points, they do a very kind of a a, a classic thing where it's kind of like they they just continuously build this hypnotic kind of um, notes and kind of r- repeated melodies and stuff, which has become such 
a kind of a trademark of, of that Goblin soundtrack and then at some point when you're about to do the drop of the really horror thing they literally just fade the entire music out a little bit and then the thing happens and they rise it back up again and it's slightly more loud and slightly more uh, like oppressive and stuff um, I listened to the original sorry the, 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 the 2018 Suspiria soundtrack all the time when I'm running because it's like a nice like calm thing and then this morning when I went for a run I decided to try the 1977 Suspiria as a running <laughs> soundtrack and it was the worst idea I've ever had in my entire life literally felt like I was running from something the entire time while I was there so I think as a horror um, soundtrack I think it actually does work really really well in that situation <laughs> okay I, I need to talk about the 2018 soundtrack because while it does have some very gorgeous calm moments and I, and I know I believe this is an album that you have on vinyl and I can I can see the scenario <laughs> where you want a nice relaxing evening you know in different times pre-covid you were you were having a you're having friends over for dinner you've you've lit your best candle you pop on yeah. you know Tom York's Suspiria soundtrack that opens with the sound of a woman having her flesh pierced by large hooks explain yourself doggy <laughs> there's a lot of skipping around to be done on the soundtrack let's get that first out of the way like you've got to you've got to you got to know the soundtrack really well to make it like a kind of an ambient kind of thing like you you start the record at the Suspiria track because it's such a good opening and stuff and if you start that um, I can I can run and then as I'm coming back home Unmade starts and that's like the walking home track and you're just like oh okay I've done a thing I feel really really well and it's like really really solid I don't know like it definitely the, the 2018 Tom York's soundtrack is so wildly different and we can get into this a little bit later on but like I, I think like it's a it's it's genuinely like really really good that they went in such a totally different different direction um the original I mean has such an iconic thing and I, I think trying to replicate it in any way uh like just would completely kind of um destroy the new film I think you know well we heard a bit from Goblin there Dahi mentioned Unmade by Tom York let's just take a quick listen to that one I mean, it should be said that even over the process Zoom audio that we're hearing here in our ears now, you'll hear a better one in the in the final mix. Oh, what a 
just beautifully rich song. It is fucking gorgeous, whether you love or hate the remake or whatever you feel about the changes that were made. And I have seen some people kind of take against the score as well, like not just the movie, but Jesus Christ, I do think that on some aspects of this, Tom York really knocked it out of the park. But I think this actually opens up the possibility of the compare and contrast, not just the, the soundtrack, but I guess we'll look at the plot first because real quick, spoilers for both of these movies, by the way, which should be apparent already, should be noted that in the original, follows a fairly straightforward story um, there's a series of murders. They're quite brutal. Um, Susie uncovers a coven, burns it down. And as soon as she does that and escapes the fucking place, the credits smash onto you. And it's like, oh, okay, cool. We're, we're done, I suppose. Um, the remake is obviously a lot more dense, a lot more minutes on the clock. And a lot more stuff happens in that one as well. And Susie has a very different fate altogether. Uh, Higgs, I guess, do you want to underline some of the changes that Luca Guadagnino who made the 2018 version kind of his expansion choices and his his general kind of changes. And I mean, like, I've, I, for me, I, I will say that I do think that if you want to call the original Suspiria style over substance, I can understand that. But with the remake, I think that it's so weighed down by the script. I think there's way too much going on and I don't think it works. Yeah, so um, Quarren, you know, he, he has, you know, the... You know, if you were to give the log line for Argento Suspiria, he he stays true to that, but he expands it in in so many different ways. Um, the the original Suspiria kind of makes reference to um, what will follow with Argento. Argento made two more movies after Suspiria that that he called his his mother's trilogy. Um, they refer to the the three mothers who are these you know three witches um, and the the two following movies kind of focus on them. Um, Guadagnino immediately kind of puts that into into his version um and kind of uh, forms this this um this power struggle within within the dance academy um like the in in Argento's the witches are are kind of peripheral they're kind of in the background um a lot of the murders that happen in it seem to be done by you know male woven characters with like hairy white arms or you know it's kind of it's kind of you're kind of unsure exactly like what is happening and and just at the end of it, it's like oh they're witches while in this one um the Guadagnino version they're very much at the forefront of it um you have Helena Marcus who is in both of them um and you have a Madame Blanc character who is in both of them in the Argento Again, not a major character, but in Guadagnino's version, uh, Tilda Swinton plays her and she's the the head of the dance academy um, who is also kind of at, at war, I guess, with uh, the Helena Marcos, the, the unseen Helena Marcos, who you will see in the final act. So you have that going on. Um, you also have... The setting itself we mentioned is during the German, uh, the German autumn in 1977, which was a time... Uh, when the Red Army faction, also known as Bader Meinhof Group, were kidnapping people, um, they they um, they hijacked a flight, a Lufthansa flight. Um, basically, they were pushing for getting away from Germany's history with uh, Nazism. Basically, they felt that denazification post-World War II had never really happened, that people who were in power under the Reich still held it. There was a massive paranoia of uh, author- 
authoritarianism um, among young people and they kind of what started out as kind of college protests turned into this, you know, was effectively a, a terrorist organization. Um, so that's there as well. Like this is just the setting, like the, the movie opens with kind of like, you know, unrest in the streets. Um, you know, if there's a TV or a radio on, it's it's making reference to either the kidnappings or the Lufthansa flight that was uh, hijacked. So you have that. And then you also like have an additional character in Josef Klemperer, who is a psychiatrist who we meet in the opening scene. Uh, he's a psychiatrist of uh, Patricia Hingle, uh, played by Chloe Grace Moretz, who basically just kind of comes out. Um, and in, you know, a similarly uh, to to the original of exposition, kind of just lays out exactly what is happening in this movie. Not as clunkily as Argento did it. But, you know, she's got a diary and she's like, this is what they're doing. They're collecting my urine. Um, they're witches. Like, you know, she says it explicitly multiple times. The diary has, uh, you know, very detailed drawings of, you know, some of the incantations, some of the spells, some of the rituals that they are doing. And this is before you even meet, um, you know, Susie Banyan, who is, you know, your protagonist. Um, you have this really, really striking opening credit sequence uh you know, set to Tom York's uh, Suspiriorum that is set on her Mennonite farm. I think it's in Ohio. And her her mother is dying. We don't know from what, but over this kind of gorgeous, uh, you know, piano composition by Tom York and these kind of haunting vocals, you just have this like death knell breath, you know, going through the whole thing. Uh, something that um, Guadagnino kind of, took from the original, like uh, when you meet Marcos, she's kind of behind a curtain and she's like heavy of breath and that's kind of her, her presence. But yeah, he, he really, really, I, I, you, I understand that you, you say like it weighs the movie down. Um, in parts, for me, it does. Like, I don't think it, it really strikes and I don't think the kind of the comparisons he's trying to make between, you know, the, the struggle that is going on within the academy, the struggle that is going on between the witches and the struggle that is going on uh, in West Berlin at the time. I mean, the struggle that was going on between East and West, the academy is literally beside the Berlin Wall. Um, it's very, very heavy uh, with its imagery. Um, I think at times it doesn't hit, but when it does, um, it really is really, really effective. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think I think that is very much the kind of the the uh, the overall theme of Suspiria, that idea of like you know, um, like ideology turned into kind of fanaticism, and then kind of just starts destroying the whole uh, like well intentioned kind of idea at the very very start. And for me, that was like my first kind of really really big takeaway was this idea of like kind of you know people become so kind of unbelievably separated from what they started out with. And then, you know, the idea of like Madame Spirit coming in and basically kind of um, cleaning the whole thing up and finishing it up. It was really weird. When I first saw the film, I I was kind of like really, really struck by this kind of idea of, um, you know, there's no such real thing as kind of like evil and good and stuff. There's only kind of like just a general things that happen and there's like a balance between the two and, you know, in, in the original and in kind of general like witch lore and stuff like that, like a, a character like Madame Suspiriano would be like a very evil character. Whereas, um, 
uh, like really it's it's more about this kind of idea of like balance and that like if there's if there's a certain amount of 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 evil being like taken over by something or if there's a certain amount of good the world has to balance back up again and like for me when I first saw the film that was like my big big takeaway and then you know it also has these huge big themes of kind of you know motherdom and and that kind of thing as well um and i think i think like it's 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 kind of hard to see the kind of the 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 um comparisons between the two but i think i think it definitely does have those kind of things on both sides you know um on on, on both sides you say dahi interesting language there um <laughs> no to be fair it is very very difficult to kind of not i guess get overwhelmed in a way by them um what i would say is that like I'm interested as to why the remake worked for you as much as it did. And also, I don't know this for sure. Like we, you know, much like no encore, we don't tend to talk about these things in advance too often. But I did notice Higgs on Letterboxd that uh, I think he went from a three and a half out of five to a four out of five. Maybe I'm wrong. For me, it was a three. And I think I might have been three and a half before. So I did find that when I revisited this, I went in very much wanting to absolutely adore it and sink into it. But I don't know. I found it a very frustrating experience overall. So I guess... um, Dahi first, like what in particular about this remake or about this film, like 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 as a standalone, I guess, like really just took you over? Like, I mean, I think the immediate reaction for sure was this kind of idea of, you know, I've said before that like, like I'm, I'm an absolute sucker for the real visual stuff like this. And like watching it again, even this week, I'm kind of struck like continuously by this idea of like texture that like the look of the thing is so kind of filled with different textures, you know, like you can see the wood and the kind of the like the fabrics that everybody's wearing and everything. So immediately it is to me like extremely striking. And like the original Suspiria has this color thing, which is like the striking thing, whereas the the newer Suspiria has this kind of you know it's devoid of color like there's barely any there but like what 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 they use instead is like this kind of idea of texture which I really really liked I think um it's very much like a a film that you kind of can sit in you know it's it's extremely like not Hollywood in that like in terms of a story and stuff like that you're kind of like immersing yourself in in a world essentially what I like out of video games actually like you know when you when you kind of like just can immerse yourself in a kind of a world in an area um that was a really really big thing for me um I think uh Again, from a visual aspect, the striking like kind of performances and stuff of the dance was like really, really amazing. Like, I don't know when it gets to that that scene where they're they're where she um, Dakota Johnson's first doing that that kind of spell dance where where she's kind of basically trying to kill the person underneath her or whatever um, is an incredible scene, and it's like so powerful and so like. Um, physical and watching it at the cinema was this amazing like super physical feeling when you're watching it and that's thanks to the sound thanks to the the feeling that like the hypnotic motion of the music and the way it kind of sets you kind of into a hypnotic state and then like the sounds of kind of bones cracking and stuff and the the sharp cuts and the the kind of the heavy breathing when somebody's dancing and stuff like that as well it all kind of creates this amazingly like physical feeling to the whole thing to the point where like that scene is so kind of powerful that like when you get to the next dance scene like you're almost like anticipating this really scary thing to happen again and like so true visuals it makes it a really really scary thing i kind of came out of it thinking that it wasn't that much of a horror film um especially the first time around where you know it has this very kind of like it's very horrifying visuals and stuff like that but there's there's a lot of tropes that are not there right down to like you know the main character is not like some helpless person it's actually like 
the the big baddie at the end really you know which is a really really cool like like um uh uh difference i guess you know um so those are the main reasons i I think it's a mainly like a visual like sound and kind of bodily experience that like i i came out of it feeling really really like um excited about it i think when you dance the dance of another you make yourself in the image of its creator you empty yourself so that her work can live within you do you understand yeah You're in a company now. You have to find your right place. You have to decide what is it you want to be for this company. Is it the head? The spine? The sex? The heart? The hands. I want to be this company's hands. Higher. Higher. That's Dakota Johnson as Susie Banyan in the 2018 version alongside Tilda Swinton as Madame Blanc, one of three roles Swinton plays. We'll talk about that in a second. We'll get into casting overall in a moment. Um, Dakota Johnson in this film, I think, is absolutely excellent. I have problems with the character. We can get into that. Tilda Swinton, also excellent as Madame Blanc. I mean, she's pretty much excellent in almost every film I've ever seen her in. Uh, I guess real quick, Dahi, one question for you, based on what you were saying previously. I always took it, and maybe look, maybe listen, maybe it's spelled out for me right there when she says, I want to be the hands. I always took it that Susie was not knowing that, for example, poor Olga, um, an infamous dance sequence of murder that anyone who's seen this film will know exactly what we're talking about. And anyone who hasn't, brace yourself. Um, it is one of the most spectacular set pieces in the film. And I believe the uh, actor is a dancer first, hence the incredible contortion she's able to put herself into. Um I always took it that Susie did not know what was happening in that room and that she, in fact, was, you know, she's mostly innocent until a certain point in the film when she eventually reveals herself, spoiler alert, to be Mother Suspiriorum and takes over things and kills everyone who was aligned the other way in an incredible Grand Guignol sequence at the end of the film that will either win you over or you'll be probably like putting your coat on in the cinema. I mean, I always felt that I've got a problem with this character because of her lack of agency. What I took to be her lack of agency, that she was very kind of wide eyed. And I didn't learn too much about her before all of a sudden she was, I guess, you know, evil. I mean, if that's the interpretation you want to look at, but certainly, you know, she's meant to be this vessel for Mother Marcos. But it turns out she's like, no, no, I am she. I was actually Mother Suspirium all along. But I don't, I didn't quite see it that way. I thought that somewhere along the way, she was corrupted, for lack of a better word. But do you really think that this whole time she was, in fact, in control? There's a there's a there's a kind of a, an argument that I would kind of subscribe to, which would be basically that uh, Madame Superiorum um, has been with her since birth, but that uh, the character doesn't realize until a certain part of the film. And one of the fun parts of the film is trying to figure out when exactly she realizes, like 
that this is inside her or whatever because there's like there's a there's a really the character i can see where you would say that the character is kind of a bit all over the place because it seems like she is different in front of different people if you know what i mean like she seems like a completely different character when she's with my agatse or like when she's with tilda swinton in different in different scenes like at some parts she feels like super mega confident and with a lot of the kind of the dialogue between her and tilda swinton there's like this kind of like um this feeling of like they're saying one thing and really saying like six or seven other things and they're communicating like kind of silently and in fact there's even one scene where basically they're not even moving their mouths and they're kind of speaking telepathically and stuff like that and then at other points like when she's with the younger girls um there's a kind of a like a real mega kind of innocence and stuff like that so i could see i could see two understandings one where like either she's like a kind of a um a deceiver where she's like playing a character to different people throughout the film or two there's some part in the film where she suddenly realizes who she who she is or what's inside her or whatever and then moves on from there which uh for me on a second or third watch is like even more entertaining than the first time if you know what I mean Higgs what was your interpretation and also how do you feel about the overall casting I guess in both versions but we're on the 2018 one at the moment so that one in particular I guess you know there's more for the actors to do in this one I think yeah I think I think you were right Dave when you say like she's she's clearly a vessel for for Mother Suspiriorum um, almost like a, a a sleeper cell that kind of just gets <laughs> gets gets awoken maybe you know maybe it's by one of the one of the spells that they they use or one of the dances that they do like there's there's a trigger like you know a manchurian candidate but i also agree with dahi like i think that that there is kind of things in the movie that that does suggest that it was from birth um we don't get a lot of susie's mom but there is a scene where she has this horrible line where she says my daughter she's my sin i smeared her on the world uh you know this was a very kind of um you know, fervent religious woman who died, who who clearly um, something had her belief that she had birthed an abomination. So maybe the fact that Mother Spurrierum was there the whole time, um, you know, kind of checks out. Um, in terms of casting, um, yeah, I, I agree. I think Dakota Johnson is great in that, you know, she is a vessel. Like she she's kind of being used and she's kind of supposed to be you know not bright-eyed in the way that Jessica Harper is in the Argento version but kind of kind of naive she's come from you know a farm and she's you know you know there's there's mention that she'd been to New York and she'd seen um the dance company do uh Vogue there but you know going to New York once and moving to Berlin in in the 70s you know uh, is a completely different thing. So like everything is like new and you're kind of trying to like see the world through your eyes. And I think she's great in that. And I think she's also great in the turn when she kind of is like, I have all this power. Um, and I think she great, brings a really, um, really great humanity to particularly like the final scene in the movie. We're we'll kind of jumping around a bit, but when she kind of goes to see um, Joseph Klemperer and basically you know, absolves him of his sins um, and kind of tells him what happened to his wife. Um, it's one of the things that kind of really kind of... An- another another theme that I didn't even get to mention earlier is like, um, you know, dealing dealing with the past and trying to get over the past. Um, 
the kind of the feeling of that. The Germans, of course, have a word for it because the Germans, of course, have a word for everything. It's Vergangenheitbewältigung, um, which is like it's a thing. It's a, it's it's an actual thing within Germany. It's like particularly like post World War Two and you know, all the atrocities there. And then for people who lived in the East and had to deal, you know, under the GDR and the Stasi, and it's kind of trying to reckon with your past, even, you know, um, if you if you don't feel like that you were necessarily complicit in everything. As again, it's something that runs through this movie with Klemperer. Um, but... Yeah, um, Dakota Johnson's great. Agree on Swinton across the board is fantastic. And just a movie that is really well rounded out in terms of like the coven of witches by great European actresses and great faces and really unique people. And even if they don't have a line, they're fantastic. Yeah, so I guess, okay, so much to unpack. And I'm worried this is going to be a two hour episode, but like, fuck it, who cares? It's lockdown. <laughs> Uh, Higgs is sipping from a goblet of wine uh, appropriately <laughs> and I've opened my second beer so it's all good uh, here's the thing right okay first of all before we get into anything else I will say Dahi mentioned the actress uh, Mia Goth there and she's fantastic in this film as Sarah a character that's barely a character in the original I think she does a phenomenal job and this film as well of course I mean like the original set in a dance academy there's almost no dancing in the remake there's lots of it and the, those sequences are spectacular particularly uh, one of the poster images of um, all of the actors dressed up in this kind of red um I, I don't know how you would describe the attire but like you know like Dakota Johnson's face painted white as well it's very very striking also uh real quick I mean it's a very very physical performance from Dakota Johnson and I think she does a fantastic job um and this is a general question because I never know no matter who the actor is it could be Al fucking Pacino and I wouldn't have a clue is that a wig because like her hair is amazing she's got this orange hair and I couldn't tell throughout the film it could very well be wig but just the amount of physicality that goes into this role i'm like how was that pulled off i'm not entirely sure it doesn't matter i'm just genuinely does anyone know i would say that that is a wig david because i don't think that dakota johnson would had dyed her hair that color she's she basically has the same hair color whenever you see her so it's unlikely that she would have dyed it and dyed it back so it is a wig well she strikes me as a committed actor so uh, you know i gave her the benefit of the doubt <laughs> One of the facts that like I, I learned when, when doing the research on this film is that she did two years of ballet like to prepare for this role. So I don't know. I'm, I might be on team natural hair. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, team great performance. I think we can all agree. But like I, the name Klemperer has come up here and there. And also real quick as well, because like even before that, and also Higgs, don't think that we didn't notice you managing to just fucking get in an incredible German word and pronunciation just like rattled off the cuff. Like, like this wasn't the highlight of your week. Certainly the highlight of my day hearing it. But like... You know, you talk about the reckoning with the past and this idea of like, I suppose, you know, even in modern times, I guess there's that whole like, is there, the, like, was it just a Seinfeld plotline? Is there a Princess Diana law somewhere where like, you know, you have to help out people, you can't be an innocent bystander. Um, the character of Klemperer is a character that is not in the original. It's a psychologist that uh, Chloe Grace Moretz sees in the opening sequence. Um, I think kind of a shockingly bad performance from Chloe Grace Moretz, but that's my interpretation of it. I've never been terribly won over by her, her skills or lack thereof. And I, I I feel like it's a good opening to the film. It sets the tone, but there's just a bit too much performance in there for me. Um, you mentioned, you know, reckoning with the past and for Klemperer and for this entire film. And the word that you didn't use was Holocaust, which is what this film continually refers back to. Um, and that, of course, in itself is such an incredibly 
harsh and difficult and horrible atrocity in, that human beings are still reckoning with and will always reckon with. I don't think the film earns the use of it. I just found it to be, I didn't find it offensive, but I just was like, I don't really think that this correlation is there. And it, at times felt a bit, not so much exploitative, but just kind of like almost not really earned. And even like um, you mentioned that final sequence in which Dakota Johnson now fully embodied by Mother Suspiriorum, absolves Klemperer of all of his shame and guilt. And there is that line. I think it's a fucking brilliant line when she says, we need guilt and we need shame, but not yours, Doctor. But I don't think the film earns it. And I just found myself at the end of the film feeling a bit just numb and not feeling that much emotion and even like you mentioned Ad Astra earlier on Dahi you know me man I'll fucking ball my eyes out of any film whatsoever but Ad Astra somehow didn't get me not that Suspiria 2018 was going to cause me to burst out crying but like I was just kind of like is that it? Yeah, like I, I think you can kind of, you can, you can kind of use the 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 Nazi thing as a kind of a another version of the say the RAF thing or the Amish thing or the Coven thing. You know, it's like very much kind of uh, they're all the same. The example of the same thing, which is basically when fanaticism just gets out of hand and something has to come along and kind of um, like rebalance the world and stuff. Um, I think I think you're you're probably right. Like there's. And I, like I'd say, one of my my main like um, uh, criticisms of the film is it is it is quite long and self indulgent. Like it definitely is that. Um, I think in general, like films like this, you know, if you're happy to be in the world, then you're you you're going to enjoy it by just sitting there and stuff. But like, there's definitely it's almost too much ideas that are thrown in at the same time, and you're almost trying to say uh, like that that idea of the four examples, kind of one on top of another, is kind of very much like I don't know. It's a bit. Um, we didn't need all four of them, if you you know what I mean. But I mean, I, I would also think that if you were going to do a film in Berlin at that time, I mean, I think it would be a bit weird not to talk about it, if you know what I mean. You know? Yeah, I, and, and well, I get that. Like, um, you know, Guadagnino did make a a very he made a choice. You know, the original is in Freiburg, shot in Munich. So, like this this movie could have been set, you know, in 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 Munich and West Germany that kind of doesn't have the immediacy of, um, you know, East v. West because it's quite literally not on their doorstep like it is in the Guadagnino version. Um, and it doesn't have, um, you know, as much of the the Red Army faction. I, I think that part suffers um, in terms of going to Dave saying that, you know, maybe the, the Klemperer storyline doesn't feel earned. I could I can see where you're coming from, but I think that the performances around it are so strong and particularly um um Lutz Eberdorf as as Josef Klemperer, but also Jessica Harper from the original, who the first time I didn't honestly pick up uh she plays Anka, his his wife who you know he lost during the war there's an, the the implication is that um you know as 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 the nazis were rounding up jewish people that she was jewish and he wasn't and he didn't do enough to save her and that that is the guilt that he's carried with him going forward but you know if if, if there was a 90 minute movie of of joseph klemperer dealing with his past i would 100% watch that as well i think that's how strong that this is um i think that's how strong um the 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 angst and the you know this just sheer haunting that that kind of like hangs over him like a fog and 
when you have that moment when they finally like reunite, even though you know everything in this movie is artificial because, you know, um, much like the original, uh, there's lots of things about this that just tell you that what you see shouldn't be trusted. But that scene with him um, meeting with his wife, Anka, is so touching and so moving. And, and, you know, it completely sweeps you away, even though you know that something is going to happen. You know that it um, it is not real. Um and it's like it's it's absolutely wonderful. It ends with a, a scare, an all timer scare for me. But um, yeah, I I think the that side of the story is totally earned because of the commitment um, from uh, Lutz Eberdorf, also known as Tilda Swinton. Well, I was going to say, but first of all, I will say that like yeah, it does end with a scare. That scene is quite literally ripped away from you, and in the cinema, uh, you could feel a great discomfort. And I will say to Guadagnino's credit. That is one of the examples of his kind of messing with tone and, you know, crash zooms and just like perspective and disorientate and kind of filmmaking techniques where I felt that it worked quite a bit. There's sometimes when like, you know, it just the camera just smashes to Tilda Swinton and it's like, oh, you're trying to invoke the 70s. You're just showing off now. And there's a lot of that for me in this movie. Um, but I will say that, like you mentioned the idea of watching some kind of origin story for uh, Joseph Klemperer. Now, we don't have a post-credit sequence in which Nick Fury shows up and has a conversation with Klemperer. Unfortunately, you know, I'd love to see where that would go. But um, I was going to ask you if like a prequel was made to this, focusing on the character of Joseph Klemperer, would you want it to be Lutz Ebersdorf, who, of course, does a pretty good job considering they've never acted before, right, Dave? Yeah, so... Um one of the big one of the big things when the, before this movie came out is you know you you in the trades you see who's in the cast and you know you have all all, all the big names that you know like Tilda Swinton's going to play Madame Blanc Tilda Swinton you know who who has worked with and is a good confidant of Luca Guadagnino um Dakota Johnson had worked with him before then you know Maya Goth and you know you fill out the cast and it's like Lutz Ebersdorf and they they a kind of a big kind of a press release was made about how the fact that they had a a I believe it was like a, a Jungian psychologist was going to be in their first role. And you're like, okay, that's that's interesting. And then I think it was the Daily Mail, weirdly. I feel like it was the Daily Mail had like, you know, on-set photographs of and they were like, oh, is Tilda Swinton playing someone different in this movie? And it was like you know, an an unflattering kind of like I'm I'm in between shots, like I'm covered in makeup, and so immediately kind of the cat was out of the bag. But that did not stop Luca Guadagnino until the Swinton continuing with this farce. <laughs> I mean, first of all, hang on, can I just say that is hilarious for the Daily Mail to be going after this <laughs> art film. But like as soon as you use the word unflattering, I was like, oh, there it is. That's why, because uh, it's like war <laughs> Tilda Swinton out of costume at. Um, strange Italian horror remake 40 years on in which he's playing an old man who looks a bit like Max von Sydow um, you know you can talk you can talk about whether this was a stunt well it certainly was but whether it was in the name of art and if it was if it was uh, worthwhile um, look listen I do think Tilda Swinton is one of the great living actors I think she is astonishing I would watch her in anything. I think she's always, you know, often inspired casting in the likes of, say, Constantine, where she plays the Angel Gabriel, or even just, you know, playing a villain in, like, Michael Clayton or whatever. She's fucking amazing. Like, I think there's nothing she cannot do. And I think she does a fantastic job under a shit ton of makeup, 
as this, um, you know, very old German man. I just think that doing it was a really obnoxious choice. And I really think it is incredibly distracting. And I just wish it was Max von Sydow. No offense to Tilda, who I love. So I understand where you're coming from. Um, I don't I don't I don't find it distracting. I, I find her totally, totally believable as as Klemperer. But the first time that I watched it, maybe there was a distraction because um, the two things that the that both of these movies share that are kind of mentioned is that like, don't trust anything that you're looking at. In in Argento's version, it's like this movie was clearly filmed on a stage. The the lighting is unrealistic. Um, like nothing at all. Don't you know? Don't trust your vision. While in this one, um, you know Luca Guadagnino, in his previous work, has kind of established himself as like, you know, the most tactile sensualist filmmaker around like if anyone's seen call me by your name you're immediately like googling where in Lombardy was this made uh, how do I get there I I want to live in his world like you know in a bigger splash again like along the coastline I think in Sicily uh, in Italy like he has an amazing sense of place and he continues that on with um, Suspiria, you know, this Berlin feels incredibly oppressive and lived in, um, you know, they filmed there and they kind of benefited from the fact that lots of, you know, East Berlin still kind of looks very brutalist in its architecture and it, it you know, you feel like you're in this world, like nothing about the, this feels like, you know, backlot, this all feels location, this all feels real. So the one thing that he kind of uses as a kind of like, there's something maybe not what it seems in this movie is maybe like the Klemperer thing where you're the whole time when the, I saw it first, I was like, is this just going to be kind of like, a, you know, a Madame Blanc ruse where, you know, you know, not necessarily like, you know, he's going to, he's going to pull the mask off like Ethan Hunt, but you're expecting something to, to go with that. And I think the fact that it didn't, particularly on the second watch, it seems like such a brave move, um, particularly because I think everything that happens with that character is so heartfelt. Um, but one other thing, I just, I find it very, very funny and I'm curious. I, I don't think they've, they've Tilda Swinton has explicitly said this, but Tilda Swinton got it in the neck a bit for playing a character in a movie. Uh, she played the ancient one in Doctor Strange. That's a character that is... Historically, in the Marvel comics, an Asian character in the um, the adaptation that came out a couple of years ago with Benedict Cumberbatch, the ancient one is repurposed as a Celtic mystic until this window plays the character. Um, rightly, criticisms of whitewashing, I kind of wonder, are her and Luca Guadagnino just kind of like taking the piss uh, out of the kind of backlash that kind of came at them um, about who gets to play what in movies. I mean, just one other thing is that, you know, they, they came up with this character, Lutz Eberdorf, um, German corner, German corner again with me. Uh, Eber means boar and Dorf means village. What's another way of saying boar village? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Swine town, David. Swine town. Swine town. I was, I, I was like, I was like, pig town. I was like, where are we going with this? I don't know. Like, um, yeah, I, I, what a thesis. I, from from my memory, I think one of the reasons why um, they decided to kind of go that route as well was because I mean, it's it kind of goes without saying that it's a, a very feminist film. You know, it's very like 
just a lot of powerful women. There's no kind of like overly sexualized scenes or anything. And I think like like one of the reasons why they wanted to do it was they thought it would be like a, a good message to have like the only main lead be played uh, by a woman, if you know what I mean. Um, and it's kind of an interesting thing as well, because I mean, when I was watching the, the earlier film as well as this one, there's a kind of a weird like they seem to send out a lot of of kind of messages through that kind of idea as well like the first one there's like an entire very long weird scene where like all of the the women in the dance troupe are talking about money and like how much one person owes the other one and how much money they have or whatever and then like in the newer Suspiria they just immediately when she arrives they have this kind of like scene where they go like oh yeah well you can stay here but like your autonomy is really important to us so we don't want you to be under the thumb of like of of money so your 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 lodgings here is free so you can be free to do your work and stuff and there seems to be a kind of a lot of different like kind of um, subtle messages through that as well um, w- that's one of the things I really really like about the Suspiria 2018 as well like there's nothing like I guess sexual about any of the dances or anything as well it's very like animalistic and very powerful and everything as well um, so I think they do a really really good job of that and I think that's probably one of the reasons why they had Tilda Swinton um, play the main male character as well you know yeah I think it's interesting what you say like I, I agree with uh, with the fact that, that Tilda Swinton plays the only male character like the only other male characters in this movie like there's this incredible scene about halfway through where (laughs) you know two cops are are looking for uh patricia hingle and they get brought in and uh susie and sarah are kind of like doing something like near an office and they kind of hear they see the cops going in and then you get this scene where you know um susie goes in and you know looks around you know behind a bookcase and the witches like three of them are just like hooting laughing they've they've got the cops in a trance one of them is they've like removed uh you know removed his trousers removed his underwear and they're just like laughing at his penis and you know <laughs> like getting one of their hooks and like holding it up like it's it's you know it's clearly like saying like these women have absolutely zero use for men in the world um <laughs> It's a it's a really like it's it's not a funny movie. That scene is actually really, really funny um, because it's basically I think you, you see those guys like one other time. But it's like, you know, that's that's what is this world for for these witches? Like we've no no use at all for men. Yeah. And when you see them again, like they're very clearly under the glamour and they're kind of like actually warding away Klemperer's claims and kind of being like, no, nah, everything's fine, man. Don't worry about it. Um, we can get into the whole, I guess, male, female thing in a second, uh, particularly because, you know, I'm very conscious that we're three lads on a podcast talking about this film that may or may not be empowering towards women. I've seen I've seen different criticisms of it. But real quick, to wrap up this kind of uh, Tilda Swinton as Lutz Eberdorf thing, uh, what I found particularly obnoxious, though, was less about the execution and more about the whole dance around it but she was you know it, it was asked of her you know it was asked are you playing dr joseph Klemperer in this film and she would say no and i think it was one journalist in particular said are you playing lutz ebersdorf and she said yes because previously there'd been this thing where like they were like no but you're asking the wrong question so uh, eventually she would talk about it so here she is at a junket explaining it all tilda explains it all my intention was that uh, that as, as is still the case, that Dr. Klemper would be played by Lutz Eberstorff, um, and that it would end there. And in fact, what I originally planned was that Lutz Eberstorff might sadly pass away during the edit, and we put his in memoriam on the ed credit, credit of the film, 
um, we decided latterly that that wouldn't happen because was he thought he might actually want a bit of an ongoing career and he might want to pop up in other people's films um, which he's still available to do by the way and he he loved working uh, in in the film so much that he would happily be available to, to other to filmmakers but um, yeah I, w I was sad about that you know um, there was a slight uh, you know spoiler what can you do? But we, we eventually wanted to, 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 to put people right. We weren't trying to make fools of anybody, and we certainly weren't interested in any kind of fake news. So we didn't want to tell any lies. I will say, you know, listen, like I say, I adore Tilda Swinton. And I will say I do enjoy that she refers to him in the present tense there at one stage. You know, oh, he had a great time making this film, like, which is great. I mean, like, and to be fair... If anyone is going to perform this, it should be Tilda Swinton, right? Because she's such a chameleon. She's been so enigmatic in whatever else she does. She, you know, can play anything. Like, literally any gender, if that's okay to say. I don't know, in this post-Scarlett Johansson universe. But, like, she's fucking unreal and does the best job that you could possibly do of this. I just wonder if it undermined intention. Uh, real quick, though, um, or maybe not real quick, but it should be known that, again, I don't know what I can really add as a bloke, but, like, I have seen people call this film misogynistic and I have seen, you know, like, it's directed by a man, it's written by a man. Obviously, it's almost every, um, almost every role is a woman. And as you say, it is very disdainful towards men. Even at the end, Klemperer is like a witness and he is shivering, naked, useless, helpless and lives to tell the tale. But ultimately, that's kind of the point. At the same time, I have seen people say that if only this film was written and directed by a woman, it would be a lot more... I, I, I don't know. I mean, like, I, I'm not qualified to say one way or the other. I mostly found it to be just a bit too... I mean, to use a Craigism here, it insists upon itself. You know, I was very much like, I just felt it was just too much. I felt it was a film of too much. And I do want to throw back to 77 soon because I feel like we spent a long time on this one. But, you know, maybe that's the mark of a good movie. It's not a film I love, but I do think that it's got a ton of problems uh, maybe it's not for us to say if it's misogynistic or not, but I didn't take that from it. But maybe the argument is there. Maybe it's bedded in. Yeah, I mean, I can see that the argument's there and it's an argument that was definitely put against Argento in 77. And it's it's one that he himself kind of hasn't really helped with how he kind of talks about it and uh, how he describes women and, you know, only wanting to see beautiful women die because nobody wants to watch an ugly girl or a man die. And it's like, yeah, we don't need that, Dario. Um, I, I get as well that, like, you know, Luca Guadagnino was a man and it was written by a man. I think that kind of sometimes when that argument is put against a movie, like if you, if you want to talk about auteurs within, within a film, like to me, it's like Luca Guadagnino and Tilda Swinton are kind of the one, two. Like, they seem very, very much like this movie doesn't exist without her, in a way. Um, so I think to kind of, to, 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 to kind of just, like, blanket state that, like, this was directed by a man kind of takes away the, the kind of input that she has. It's kind of, I know, I think an episode or two ago, you were talking about Elle. And again, like, that's a movie written and directed by a man. But I think, you know... Isabel Hubert has like gone toe to toe with, you know, quote unquote, the, you know, these like, you know, um, I wouldn't say maniacal in Guadagnino's case, but maybe in Michael Haneke's case, like directors who are like dictatorial in how they approach movies. But she's made lots of movies of them and clearly knows how to handle them. And I think to say that she is not an auteur of a movie like that is kind of, 
I don't really get that argument. But in terms of this one, yeah, I think that's fair, but um, I don't see it certainly as much as the original. As a side, uh, you know, Tilda Swinton plays a third character. We know, we know that, yeah. Helena Marcos, yes, which I felt like, yeah, during, during the final uh, carnage sequence, which, again, I'm like, cool, <laughs> but, but I don't know if, like... <laughs> I, I found it, re- like, when I first watched the film in the cinema, I was, like, so horrified by Helena Marcos, and, like, like I, I could barely look at her for a long time. Watching it, like, the fourth or fifth time, like, you really start to see how ridiculous that suit is. There's, like weird baby hands in different parts of the suit and stuff like that and I just found that so strange there's one hanging off their fucking shoulder and I was like Jesus Christ also sorry I've seen this film twice now have you seen it five times I'm, I'm never gonna watch this again I, I, like it, and, and that's not like that's not like a shot I just I don't like being in this world I did find it too like the okay like let's compare aesthetics right I mean I don't like the aesthetic of the Guadagnino version I think it looks fucking gross I think it's way too muted for me it's way too brown and grey and just treacly or whatever that word is um, I don't enjoy its company I suppose and you, know, you might be like well hey Dave that's the point but I just felt it was just not like especially if you're going to expand your thing to 151 minutes I mean I don't know I just found it really kind of not claustrophobic like in terms of like oh my god this is so well framed and so well put together it just felt like bloated it just felt a bit too kind of like you know, I can do what I want. And to be fair, I don't know Guadagnino's work. I, I, I'm not terribly familiar. But no, nah, I mean, like, I went back in and even like, I will say as well, real quick, though, for anybody who has not seen these movies, um, if you're going to check out the 2018 version, uh, depending on where you do, be careful. Because like, I watched it on Amazon Prime and they had this weird thing where like with the subtitles in the opening sequence, they were embedded and they were on the screen as they should be. Because so much of this dialogue is in German. But like, they went away and I had to keep putting them on. I had to keep like hitting the fucking button for the subtitles, which meant that I kept getting like closed caption stuff as well of like, you know, Madame Blanc coughing or whatever. So for some reason on Amazon Prime, the, the, the subtitles aren't as they should be. But also, and I know that this is something that matters to you as well, is like in the actual cinematic version that we saw, like the subtitles themselves are almost their own character because they're very gothic. They're kind of white and red and it's part of the aesthetic. I don't doubt for one second that Guadagnino... You know, like he commits to his aesthetic. I'm just not. It's just not for me. It's so funny. Like the the subtitle thing is really, really strange because um, and I've been trying to look for a Blu-ray version of the film that actually has the 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 feature film version that was in the cinema because like the the subtitles had like this whole thing about them. They had this very kind of gothic look to them, and then they also had like you know when somebody was speaking German, they had this red underlay on the subtitle. But when somebody was speaking French, they had like a blue underlay and stuff. So there was all this like stuff that added to the character, and it like it 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 added to the look and the feel of the whole thing. And that is not in like any of the 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 versions that are available for streaming or anything which i'm really really surprised by because i do actually genuinely feel like it's such a kind of important part of the kind of the the general world of the thing um i think it probably does come down to to kind of personal preference i think um i think the look of the thing to me like even though it has that washed out feel i think it feels very um like a music video or something like that i think there's some really interesting kind of nods to horror and stuff. And I think we've touched on it earlier, which is basically like, you know, there's like the idea of the kind of the, the by hand zoom in stuff. Like you'll see in a lot of kind of horror films or a lot of films in general nowadays, like a slow zoom in will be this like perfectly even thing that will be done by a computer. Whereas like, 
um, back in the day, they used to have the actual lens and actually turn it by hand. So you can actually, it's incredibly hard to have it completely smooth. Um, I did a music video uh, with Lachlan McKenna um, a couple of years ago called In My Darkest Moments. And uh, we shelled out for this absolutely insane, really old lens because it was able to do this thing, this like mega slow zoom thing. So because we wanted basically the entire music video to slowly zoom in on stuff. And then you can even see like, I mean, when she first comes in, when when the main character first comes into the dance place, the, 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 the crane lifts up very slowly and it's very kind of juddery and stuff like that. And it has that real kind of old style kind of film film thing and all of that stuff I really, really love. I think it really, really adds to the whole thing. Um, when I first went to Berlin, uh, <laughs> the morning after my first night out, I walked around Berlin on my own listening to the Suspiria soundtrack and freaked the shit out of myself because I kept thinking that there was people looking at me and there was like weird witches. It could have been the hangover. It could have been the music. I'm not sure which, but it was, uh, I think, I think it, again, a bit like Victoria, which is the last podcast I was on for here. Um, it does it does quite a good job of giving that kind of Berlin feel, I think. Higgs, what would you say to that <laughs> yeah 100 um again like i think i mentioned like they they film there and you, you can feel that like there's some like really really nice touches that they do um klemperer has a daca like a little kind of holiday home that is kind of i think what would have been like outside of um there is some of them in like west west berlin out near the olympic stadium that like i've i've seen before but like the implication is that like he has to kind of go through the east and out into further into the west um like little touches like that they're so so good like the the studio it's sorry the the dance studio itself like where all the witches hang out like the the frankfurt kitchenette like everything is just like it's so so well considered i know dave that you find it dull um i find this like incredibly like a rich movie to look at like across the board um even you know you talked about the subtitles like the the typography on the end credits um like everything about it is so well considered and it's it's kind of coming back to what i said about like if you've seen a guadagnino movie before like they're very very romantic and they're very very evocative and you're just like, I want to go to that place once you've seen it. And in this, he kind of like weaponizes it in a way where he's just like, well, all the kind of like touch and feel that I excel in, I'm going to make like really painful to be in. And like even take the rain, um, you know, when Susie arrives in both movies, uh, Susie arrives at Dance Academy during like a pretty full on rainstorm in the uh, in the Argento version. It's like, you know, you can you can sense the wind machines just out off camera, like pounding Jessica Harper as she's like trying to go in while in Guadagnino's version. It's just like it's so cold. It's so damp. It, it's like there's a oppressiveness that just like gets into the bones of you while you're watching it. And, um, you know, that doesn't seem like the kind of thing where you're like, oh, I'll stick that on for a, a nice, you know, afternoon hang. But um I find the way he does it just like so masterful. Question for you both. Uh, Dahi first, maybe, because I guess I want to tie it back to 77 as as Higgs has just done. And I will say that in particular in the 77 version, the opening sequence where she comes out of the airport and goes into the cab and just the rain hammering down, that could be its own short film. It's an amazing little thing. And without even seeing anything, I guess, violent or vulgar, it, it lets you know that you're in a dangerous place. And to be fair to Guadagnino, like 
the Suspiria 2018 version is full of danger, um, even outside of his more artful kind of short bursts of, you know, horror imagery, which I didn't quite need. And some of them are just kind of gross for the sake of it. But like, okay, let me ask this question, right? So Dahi, you first. Can you understand slash what would you say to people who took against the 2018 version for not being the 1977 version? Like, can you understand and appreciate the legacy thereof? But also, obviously, you know, I know that this one means so much more to you. So I guess, you know, not to be so basic as like, well, can't we have both? But like, they are very, very different. I'm glad that they're very, very different. I wouldn't want a straight remake because how often have we seen that? And it's always you know, it always misses something or it's just very Hollywoodized. I applaud Suspiria 2018 for existing. I don't dislike it. I just don't love it. What's your kind of overall compare and contrast, especially for the hardcores? I mean, I think I think the strongest things from the 1977 version is both the music and like the color and the look of the thing. And by removing both of those, you basically take away the two like absolute touchstones of the original Suspiria. So I can completely understand why somebody who was a fan of the original would find this thing to be like completely different. I mean, you can also argue that the first Suspiria wouldn't really be kind of considered like an arthouse film, like like a modern day arthouse film. You know what I mean? Like there's kind of, there's a lot more t- like of a kind of a film um, storyline to it, if you know what I mean. And there's a lot more of a kind of a horror touchstone thing. Um, so yeah, I, I can completely understand why why somebody uh, would would like not be into the, the remake, you know? I, I don't get it because I mean, if, if you're a horror fan um, and you hold Suspiria up as one of the staples of, of the horror genre, which I myself do, um, you're, you're fairly well used to, you know, all the greats being remade. Like I, I can't think of one that hasn't either got a bad sequel or, you know, hasn't been me, been remade by you know Michael Bay's production company in the late 2000s like it's kind of an an inevitability so why would you not want um you know a director like Guadagnino who you know not that you should be you know using Oscar nominations to to judge who is a good filmmaker or not but he's certainly an interesting filmmaker and he's not someone that's just kind of coming in from a purely commercial sense like this is a pretty uncommercial movie that he somehow hoodwinked Jeff Bezos to pay for. Um, and, you know, if you if you just want to watch a kind of like somewhat empty, gorgeously, you know, colourful movie, I'd recommend Dave Hanratty favourite The Neon Demon. I was going to say, like, there are some... I, I was thinking about this earlier on today as I was sh- having a shave. Mm. Who says having a shave? I was shaving. I was looking in the bathroom mirror and I was like, sorry, bathroom mirror. That's very drawn of me. And I was just like, I was like, oh my God, fuck. I was like, the Suspiria 2018 is a not as good version of the Neon Demon, which I myself have fresh problems with. But look, listen, conversation for another podcast, I suppose. Go check them all out. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like what you said has a ton of merit and I don't want to detract from... You know, the last thing I want to do is stand here and say, hey, look, uh, Suspiria 2018, how dare they? They betrayed us. I prefer the original, but I completely understand why people love the fucking remake. And it's great that it happened at all. Yeah, I would be I would be on the side with Higgs as well, where let that idea of, you know, like like I think they come out of the gate as well with the the 2018 Suspiria kind of saying well this isn't a remake this is like a cover right like this is like I think I think he even said that like 
he was like, oh, I was trying to remember what it was like when I watched it when I was 14 and then wrote a film based off that. And to be honest, like, there's so many remakes and stuff like that that, like, I would way, way prefer, like, this is essentially a a kind of a a reimagining in the same world almost with the same characters or something like that or, like, alternate universe or something like that, you know? Um, And I would be very much on that side as well where it's, like, I would much, much prefer if there was going to be a redo of a film to kind of do it in this cover version style rather than a full remake, you know? So, listen, before we wrap up, um, not to get all fucking Bill Simmons rewatchables here, but when it comes to the score, the music, uh, who wins? Because I feel like ultimately... I think in terms of Suspiria, right, 1977, Dario Argento version, the whole atmosphere, the whole thing, I said before, sensory experience, it's so overwhelming. And I think that in the context of the film, and I know this is the ultimate cliche, but like the fucking music isn't just a character. It's a character that is relentlessly pursuing you from start to finish. And it does an incredible, like, like an absolutely astonishing job. But I couldn't just stick it on. I couldn't just throw it on and listen to it. I do think that the Tom York score is fucking amazing. I also, you know, at 80 minutes long and in and of itself, toing and froing as it does, it's again, I'm not going to fucking just throw it on out of nowhere, but I do think it's fucking incredible. So, you know, despite everything I've said, if I had to, if I had to pick one, I'm probably picking Tom York. Um, I mean, if, if you're talking about something that you would just want to stick on and listen to, yeah, it's Tom, the Tom York score every time. If you want to talk about more iconic, I think Goblin have them. And if you want to talk about like which one is more key to the movie, like the the Goblin score, one of the really interesting things that like Agento does in the original is that he doesn't edit it like a like what we are used to in horror movies, which is kind of like, you know, to build up tension that you just kind of you you keep cutting in, the cuts get faster, the camera gets closer to the face until like, bam, something is there. It's terrifying. In the Argento version, it's just like, there's a lot of times like the, the unease and uh, the unsettling that you feel is just the Goblin score. It's like a very, very static medium or even wide shot. Like I'm thinking of the, the scene where um, the blind piano player is like walking through this massive square in Freiburg with his dog and like it's gorgeously lit but like there's nothing eerie about you know where he's walking it's just him walking but like the the score is so unbearable and you know it's just building it's doing all the all the heavy lifting in terms of setting atmosphere while um i do love the tommy york score like i I do find it weird like when we played unmade earlier um, which is a gorgeous song and then I could stick on and like while I'm working or doing anything and just like I find it very relaxing that Guadagnino uses it in a scene where you know uh, Dakota Johnson is, as Mother Suspiriorum is basically just walking around pointing at people and their heads are exploding scanner style oh she's fucking Doctor Doom it's, in that sequence man <laughs> <laughs> it's um, like again like it, it's 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 an interesting choice because um you know, the kind of the, the tenderness of that song actually works really well when she's kind of going up to uh, Mia Gott's character, Sarah, and being like, what do you want? And they're like, I want death. And she's kind of like, again, like the the kind of absolving that Munchesperium does that keeps going on with Klemperer later, like works really well. But um, I don't think 
uh, the Argento version works without Goblin. I do think that you could get a version of what Guadagnino wanted to do without Tom York. Yeah, I, I would agree with that as well. I think I think the Goblin soundtrack probably um, achieves more as a film score than what the Tom York um, music does for Suspiria 2018. But I would, uh, again, agree with you guys that like in a million miles, the Tom York record is like some of the best music that I've ever heard in general. And, you know, you can kind of... I think it's some of the best stuff that Tom York has ever done. I'm a massive fan of like uh, there's these full YouTube videos of Tom York just playing with his piano, where it's just like 45 minutes of like different videos of him playing with a piano. And I think some of that stuff is like the most uh, like emotive and the most like that you get to see Tom York laid bare. And and the Suspiria 2018 soundtrack like has that in spades. And you know, there's there's it just feels like a really really amazing thing. But I think yeah, the the Goblin. The Goblin soundtrack is, for my money, the main character. Basically, like it's it's so up in your face the entire time while you're watching. It uh, the sound of it is like what the colors look like. So in terms of how like they're melded together, I think like it's a real masterstroke. That like the music actually does sound like the real bright neon colors and the weird pink blood and stuff like that is like they're they're all the elements that are in the music as well so like it is really really incredible and i think one of the facts from the suspiria 1977 is that they had the music like blaring 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 at the top volume while they were filming the whole thing so the visible discomfort that's coming from the actors in a lot of the scenes is genuinely from this incredibly loud music going over them so the actors are almost experiencing the same um discomfort that you're experiencing while you're watching it. <laughs> it's a hard film to watch it is genuinely hard to watch and to be fair i think it's it is hard to like and we're not you know this episode is titled versus but we're not here to pick a winner i think this has been an interesting conversation because like it has managed to kind of bring about the idea of like comparing and contrasting and like you know maybe both have incredible merits i mean ultimately listener i would like you to kind of check them both out and see how you feel about them both and if you love them both fucking unreal um musically yeah like it's hard to kind of dive in and dive out but maybe you will find one or two songs that, that will stay with you um yeah it's been it's been a wild ride we could talk about this thing all day we're not going to because i think two hours is enough but i will say uh, before we wrap up and i think higgs might have a quiz it's on the running order so i hope he does i'll say first of all um it's patreon.com slash no encore if you like what you heard. If you listen to us for this long, I kind of feel like you're a fucking hardcore because, you know, I can totally understand you're like, well, look, listen, this is just three guys talking absolute nonsense about horror films in the middle of November. <laughs> but listen, um, we have had an incredible year with this show. And whether it's no popcorn, whether it's no encore, whether it's track by track stuff or individual episodes. Um, and of course, you know, not to bore you, but in this remote era, I, I had this moment there a second ago where I was just looking at the Zoom screen and I was like, you know what? This was a fucking lot of fun in a week in which I'm off the main show. But like, it, it amazes me sometimes the fact that like I haven't been sitting in front of my friends. I haven't been in a studio and somehow we're still getting this thing done. Hopefully, you know, Dolly's going to edit the hell out of this. He's going to make it sound amazing. <laughs> I assume he's going to like put some New York compression on my voice so that the two giant bottles of beer that are just kicking in now don't sound too fucking much at this stage of the show but real quick uh, everyone who has supported us on Patreon at patreon.com slash noencore thank you so so much it means an awful lot to us and if you want to help out the show that's where you can do it Dave Higgins do you have a quiz? 
I've got a quiz. I've got ten questions. You're going to get five each. Oh god, I'm so <laughs> bad at quizzes. I'm so good at quizzes. Otherwise, <laughs> like, this is oh, known. God. Otherwise, I was thinking that like it was going to end up that like you know you'd both have to like somehow buzz in. You know, maybe you could have like a hot key with a with a goblin witch. <laughs> you know. Again, to be fair, I wasn't kidding about the Zoom era. These are real fucking problems that we can't get around. So I appreciate your uh, your etiquette here. I can't believe I'm doing a Zoom on quiz, like a quiz on a Zoom call <laughs> at the end of the year. <laughs> this is the worst thing ever. We got you. It's locked in too, baby. Uh, Dahi is our guest. I'm going to let him go first. Oh, Jesus Christ. Okay. Hang on. Can I ask a question? If he gets it wrong, does it pass to me or how does this work? Like, No, he just gets it wrong. So hang on. So he, so he, is he getting five in a row? No, Jesus. Don't put me on the spot like that. No, I'll, 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 I will alternate. Okay. Okay. I'll give him one, then you get one. So, you know, we get a bit of tension going. Okay, it's uh, it's witch-themed. Witch, witches in movies-themed. <laughs> oh, God. Um, You're going down, Dahi. I am so going down. <laughs> name the three mothers in the Dario Argento Mothers trilogy. Oh, my God. Uh, they're kind of weird Latin names. Is that is that is that it? The Mother Suspiriorum, Mother... Tenembam, ten, Tenembarum, or something like that, and uh, Mother. I don't know the last one. I don't know the last one. Uh, you had, you had, you had two. It's a, a Mother Suspiriorum, Mother Royal Tenenbaum, as you said, <laughs> and uh, the final one is a, a Mother Lacrimarum. I knew uh, that. I won't say what. <laughs> I knew that, but no point for Dave. Hang on, he got two. Out of, he got two out of three. You got to get something there, right? Give him a half point. I, I don't have the capacity to do half points here. No, it's do it. Uh, okay, Dave, you're, Dave, your first question. All right, hit me. Um, name the two sequels to Dario Argento's Suspiria. Inferno, which I watched over Horror Month, and also uh, The Mother of Tears. That is correct. The Mother of Tears is Mother Ooh. Lacrimarum, as we mentioned in the last one. Okay. Starring his daughter, Asia Argento. Okay, so that's one nil to Dave. Um, Bonus point for Dave for knowing the uh, familial <laughs> representation in the film. Thank you. Uh, question two for Dahi. What is the German word for which it is repeated quite often oh. in the uh, opening scene with Clara Grace Moretz and Luf, Lutz Eberdorf? You've seen it five times, brother. Over to you. I have absolutely <laughs> no idea. Absolutely it's, 100% no idea. It's it's a word that you would associate with which in English. Something they would do. I shouldn't be giving hints, but, you know, he's a guest. Yeah, and also I'm not going to try and make up a German word for something that I know in English. That's not, that's not what I'm going to be doing here. <laughs> I give up. <laughs> okay, uh, the answer is Hexa. Oh. So hexa. in the opening scene, she says, Sie sind Hexen, they are witches. Wow. Um, okay, Dave, this one... Should be easy for you. Name the town at the centre of the Blair Witch Project. Burkittsville, Maryland. Oh boy, yeah, that's two oh, nil to Dave. This is gonna be <laughs> this is gonna be rough. Uh, question three for Dahi: Who played the Grand High Witch in Nicholas Rogue's adaptation of Roald Dahl's The Witches? Say, repeat the question, please. Name. Oh, sorry, who played the Grand High Witch in Nicholas Rogue's adaptation of Roald Dahl's The Witches? A movie that absolutely terrified me when I was a child. I we don't have time to go into this, but I could talk about this movie for fifteen minutes and how much it traumatized me. 
please don't. Again, I, I have absolutely no idea. I, I, I have no idea. <laughs> Dave, do you know who it is? Angelica Houston. That's correct. Angelica Houston. I won't take man. the point though. I'm still on two. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, you don't you don't need the point. Don't worry like... about it, man. We're going five for five here. For Dave, oh, name the three actresses who play the titular witches of Eastwick. Michelle Pfeiffer, Susan Sarandon, and the artist known as Cher. That is also correct. A three nil. Oh this is God. he. He's won it already, but a drubbing, a, a drubbing, a drubbing. Is, is he going? Oh, it's, going to turn, it's going to turn into a romp before it's over, my friend. <laughs> okay, question four for Dahi. What is the name of the demonic goat in Robert Eggers' The Witch? Uh, uh, no, I have no idea. I have no idea. Dave, do you want to put him out of his misery? <laughs> is it Black Peter? Or am I making that up? No, it's Black Philip. I was close. I was close, though. <laughs> Come on. That was close. That was close. See, uh, I'm not perfect, you know. Um, okay, your question four. You didn't get it. Well, obviously, you didn't get a point because you didn't get that right. Uh, who plays... Three, three so far, though. Who plays the Wicked Witch of the West in Sam Raimi's immediately forgettable Oz, the Great and the Powerful... Great and Powerful? You know I have a rule... And that I will not watch any film that stars James Franco if I can, if I can make that happen. So I have not seen this film. Um, is it Mila Kunis? That's correct. That's also. Oh my a, god, that woo! is ridiculous! <laughs> Amazing. A mild spoiler, Four. I guess, for that movie also. Uh, yeah, I figured. Figured, you know. I mean, that, that's how workmen like these Franco movies are, man. His love interest <laughs> is going to be the villain because you know why not? Question five for Dahi. Um, who is missing from this list? Nev Campbell, Rachel True, Robin Tunney, and... Ah, oh, Jesus. Absolutely no idea. Oh, my God. I'm never... I hate witches, and I'm never going on a movie podcast ever again. <laughs> Dave? Oh, fuck. It's uh, Feruza Balk, right? Correct. The Craft. For you to go 5-0. and oh. Mm-hmm. Name the Stephen Sondheim musical adapted into a Disney movie with Meryl Streep as the witch. I know you're a big Sondheim person, so this is should it, be easy uh, for you. Is it called uh, Into the Woods? That's correct. Five and oh. Oh my God. Five by oh five. It's amazing. C- congratulations. Thanks. I, congratulations. Dahi, I take no joy in this. The, like, 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 you know, the, I feel like the craft question alone yeah. was unfair. A real challenge. A real challenge. Anyway. <laughs> I had to bring good, you back down. To, I had nothing to do with this. Good to be a great adversary. I, this, look, uh, I, I had no part of this. I did not know what was coming. <laughs> I just saw the word quiz. And listen, to be fair, all this means is that you've lived more of your life than I've lived mine. So that, that's all it is. Dahi Odroni. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thank you legitimately so, so much for lending your Suspiria expertise to this episode. It has been invaluable to this. And I suppose, you know, in many ways, you were our vessel on this one. So congratulations <laughs> on becoming uh, Dahi Suspiriorum. I hope you will use your powers wisely and not actually corrupt and kill people. But, you know, if they have a coming, if they vote against you, pop those fucking heads. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be here. Dave Higgins by my side, as always. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, I guess a tonal shift is needed. And so next time on No Popcorn, we're going to dive into this world. We're supposed to unite the world and save reality as we know it. 
Bill. We've spent our whole life trying to write the song that will unite the world. Why can't we just go to the future when we have written it? Whoa! Take it from ourselves! But isn't that stealing? How is that stealing if we're stealing it from ourselves, dude? <laughs> How'd you like our song? It's a little on the dark side, but you know, that's cool. To be fair, what kind of palate cleanser can you do? How better can you get than the wonder that is Keanu Reeves? It is, of course, Bill and Ted Face the Music, the long, long, long-awaited sequel to Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, which itself was a sequel to Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. I guess we're going to try and work in all three of these, Higgs? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, we might as well get all get all three in. Um... Yeah, this was a movie we'd, we'd, we'd planned to do earlier in the year. Uh, it, it was it briefly was released in the cinemas and then unfortunately the cinemas closed. So we kind of got put on the back burner, but we couldn't we couldn't not visit Bill and Ted face the music, could we? Oh, yeah. I'm pretty sure like the shutters were literally being pulled down as this film was starting to fucking boot up on the digital projector. But yeah, look, you know, it's a different film. It's a different kind of film. And I'm one I'm very, very much looking forward to. And yeah, that'll be next up on No Popcorn. I guess, you know, I don't know if it's good. I don't think it's going to be amazing, but it's going to be different. You know, it's going to be a nice way to see in the end of November, the start of December. Dahi Odroni, what do you have coming up? Um, I know you're working on lots of music. I don't know if we can talk about that, but I know that you've been busy. Yeah, I'm working on a couple of different music projects. Uh, One of them is... uh, I can't one one I can't talk about, and then there's one there's one that is uh, I'm working on a TG Carrier uh, TV series that's going to be coming out next year, uh, which is based around the minds of artists, and it's a uh, there's no narration on the thing, so it's just basically all music and visuals. So I'm kind of very very busy working on twelve episodes of that at the moment. So yeah, that's my entire job right now. <laughs> okay, I guess you know uh, next time you're free, we'll get you back in, in like in this incredible remote studio. Absolutely, and we'll talk about some more uh, some more movies. You said it was your last movie podcast. I don't believe that for a second. <laughs> You'll come back, right? Just because Higgs like, like out of nowhere like decided to, <laughs> to to put down a gauntlet that was. You know, again, I mean, listen, I take no pride in my victory, man. That's the most important thing here. Maybe, I'm a real Madame Blanc, you know, <laughs> so I am. Maybe next time I'll come with a quiz and then we'll Fucking test you do it. And that's a real proper, that would be a good adversary kind of thing going on. I think that, that would be Unbelievable. Well. <laughs> um, his name is Dahio Droni. His name is David Higgins. My name is Dave Hanratty. This has been an absolutely epic episode of No Popcorn. No Encore is the show. We're on the Heads of Podcast Network. We're all off to resurrect an ancient witch. Catch you again soon. Stuff Podcast Network.
next. The order breakfast at the McDonald's drive-thru. Tell yourself you'll wait to eat it at work, but it smells way too good. So you eat it right there in the McDonald's parking lot meal. There's a meal for every morning at McDonald's. Right now, get any size iced coffee for 99 cents until 11 a.m. And pair it with your favorite breakfast sandwich or one of our tasty bakery treats. Price and participation may vary. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. McDonald's. I'm loving it. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 